Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audio Files, or Learning Be Lit AF. My name is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher. I have to keep telling myself that. I am a high school English teacher. I have been a high school English teacher for 20 years. I've taught every grade and level in high school, from remedial to college prep to honors to AP. I've taught something like 3,000 students in those two decades. And for the last year, I've also been a podcaster. I'm not sure how I feel about that part, to be honest. It didn't become what I intended it to become, which was an aid for my fellow teachers who found themselves suddenly without content for a class that was being moved online by the pandemic. I figured teachers could find an episode they liked, give the students the text being examined, and then throw on the audio and take it easy for a period. As far as I know, no teachers have done that. But that includes me. I was also going to use this podcast to supplement, or maybe supplant, my regular teaching. I haven't done that, even though pretty much all of these are on the content I normally teach. Of course they are, because that way I know what to say about the literature. I still haven't used them. I think there's a combination of a desire to actually read through and explore literature with my students, which is still my favorite thing to do, even in a Zoom class, which is a terrible environment for a literature discussion. And also, I feel guilty when I find an easy way to do my job. It always feels like I should be putting in maximum effort, or else I'm doing something wrong. I guess it's also not very tempting to use technology to teach this year. So, I guess I wonder if teachers will start using these episodes in future years. Or students. I also thought my students might be interested in learning more literature and rhetoric, getting more practice. That hasn't happened either. Though no shade thrown, students have also been working themselves to distraction this year, and a literature podcast probably isn't their idea of a good time. People have been listening to it, that I know, and thank you. But I don't know how much this needs to continue. I feel like I'm making a pretty good, po- pretty good product, at least reasonably so, but it does feel like very difficult to find the time and energy to do it well, and maybe I should put that time and energy into writing instead. So, here it is. Six more episodes of the Feminist Justice series, and then we're going to call it a day. At least for now. I may decide there is more I need to say in the future, or maybe I'll find a new podcast concept. I thought about doing something about arguments. Maybe that'll work out. We'll see. For now, I need to get cracking on recording my very favorite pieces by women authors. This is one of them. On Being a Cripple by Nancy Mares is an amazing essay about the author's life with multiple sclerosis. I feel something of a connection to this piece, mainly because it's been one of the ones that I've taught for years now, and it's one of the most effective essays that I use in my teaching, and partly because Dr. Mares was a local. She earned her graduate degrees from the University of Arizona here in Tucson, and a good friend of mine went to high school with her daughter. I have sent this essay to people I have known who have suddenly found themselves in situations akin to Dr. Mares's. I don't know if that was a good idea, though I have received positive feedback from some of the people who have read it. I know that I get literal goosebumps when I read a specific moment in this essay, even after the two dozen or so times I have read it with my classes, and so I'm looking forward to reading it for this episode. I recommend getting a copy of the text, which can be found through a link I've put in the episode notes, and reading it along with me. This is a longish piece, so there's a lot to take in. Then, after I've read it, I'll go over what I think is the most remarkable element of this remarkable essay, the aspect I focus on in teaching it to my rhetoric classes. Dr. Mares's use of diction, of word choice. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, let's just read. Ready? Here we go. On Being a Cripple by Nancy Mares. 
To escape is nothing. Not to escape is nothing. Louise Bogan The other day I was thinking of writing an essay on being a cripple. I was thinking hard in one of the stalls of the women's room in my office building as I was shoving my shirt into my jeans and tugging up my zipper. Preoccupied, I flushed, picked up my book bag, took my cane down from the hook, and unlatched the door. So many movements unbalanced me, and as I pulled the door open, I fell over backward, landing fully clothed on the toilet seat with my legs splayed in front of me. The old beetle-on-its-back routine. Saturday afternoon, the building deserted. I was free to laugh aloud as I wriggled back to my feet, my voice bouncing off the yellowish tiles from all directions. Had anyone been there with me, I'd have been still and faint and hot with chagrin. I decided that it was high time to write the essay. First, the matter of semantics. I am a cripple. I choose this word to name me. I choose from among several possibilities, the most common of which are handicapped and disabled. I made the choice a number of years ago, without thinking, unaware of my motives for doing so. Even now, I'm not sure what those motives are, but I recognize that they are complex and not entirely flattering. People, crippled or not, wince at the word cripple, as they do not at handicapped or disabled. Perhaps I want them to wince. I want them to see me as a tough customer, one to whom the fates, gods, viruses have not been kind, but who can face the brutal truth of her existence squarely. As a cripple, I swagger. But, to be fair to myself, a certain amount of honesty underlies my choice. Cripple seems to me a clean word, straightforward and precise. It has an honorable history, having made its first appearance in the Lindisfarne Gospel in the 10th century. As a lover of words, I like the accuracy with which it describes my condition. I have lost the full use of my limbs. Disabled, by contrast, suggests any incapacity, physical or mental. And I certainly don't like handicapped, which implies that I have deliberately been put at a disadvantage by whom I can't imagine. My God is not a handicapper general. In order to equalize chances in the great race of life. These words seem to me to be moving away from my condition, to be widening the gap between word and reality. Most remote is the recently coined euphemism, differently abled, which partakes of the same semantic hopefulness that transformed countries from undeveloped to underdeveloped, then to less developed, and finally to developing nations. People have continued to starve in those countries during the shift. Some realities do not obey the dictates of language. Mine is one of them. Whatever you call me, I remain crippled. But I don't care what you call me, so long as it isn't differently abled, which strikes me as pure verbal garbage, designed by its ability to describe anyone to describe no one. I subscribe to George Orwell's thesis that the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. And I refuse to participate in the degeneration of the language to the extent that I deny that I have lost anything in the course of this calamitous disease. 
I refuse to pretend that the only differences between you and me are the various ordinary ones that distinguish any one person from another. But call me disabled or handicapped if you like. I have long since grown accustomed to them, and if they are vague, at least they hint at the truth. Moreover, I use them myself. Society is no readier to accept crippledness than to accept death, war, sex, sweat, or wrinkles. I would never refer to another person as a cripple. It is the word I use to name only myself. I haven't always been crippled, a fact for which I am soundly grateful. To be whole of limb is, I know from experience, infinitely more pleasant and useful than to be crippled. And if that knowledge leaves me open to bitterness at my loss, the physical soundness I once enjoyed, though I did not enjoy it half enough, is well worth the occasional stab of regret. Though never any good at sports, I was a normally active child and young adult. I climbed trees, played hopscotch, jumped rope, skated, swam, rode my bicycle, sailed. I despised team sports, spending some of the wretchedest afternoons of my life, sweaty and humiliated, behind a field hockey stick and under a basketball hoop. I tramped alone for miles along the bridle paths that webbed the woods behind the house I grew up in. I swayed through countless dim hours in the arms of one man or another under the scattered shot of light from mirrored balls and gyrated through countless more as Tab Hunter and Johnny Mathis gave way to the Rolling Stones' Creedence Clearwater Revival, Cream. I walked down the aisle. I pushed baby carriages, changed tires in the rain, marched for peace. When I was 28, I started to trip and drop things. What at first seemed my natural clumsiness soon became too pronounced to shrug off. I consulted a neurologist who told me that I had a brain tumor. A battery of tests, increasingly disagreeable, revealed no tumor. About a year and a half later, I developed a blurred spot in one eye. I had, at last, the episodes disseminated in space and time requisite for a diagnosis, multiple sclerosis. I have never been sorry for the doctor's initial misdiagnosis, however. For almost a week until the negative results of the tests were in, I thought that I was going to die right away. Every day for the past nearly ten years, then, has been a kind of gift. I accept all gifts. Multiple sclerosis is a chronic degenerative disease of the central nervous system, in which the myelin that sheathes the nerves is somehow eaten away, and scar tissue forms in its place, interrupting the nerves' signals. During its course, which is unpredictable and uncontrollable, one may lose vision, hearing, speech, the ability to walk, control of bladder and or bowels, strength in any or all extremities, sensitivity to touch, vibration and or pain, potency, coordination of movements. The list of possibilities is lengthy and, yes, horrifying. One may also lose one's sense of humor. That's the easiest to lose, and the hardest to survive without. In the past ten years, I have sustained some of these losses. 
Characteristic of MS are sudden attacks called exacerbations, followed by remissions, and these I have not had. Instead, my disease has been slowly progressive. My left leg is now so weak that I walk with the aid of a brace and a cane. And for distances, I use an Amigo, a variation on the electric wheelchair that looks rather like an electrified kitty car. I no longer have much use of my left hand. Now my right side is weakening as well. I still have the blurred spot in my right eye. Overall, though, I've been lucky so far. My world has, of necessity, been circumscribed by my losses, but the terrain left me has been ample enough for me to continue many of the activities that absorb me, writing, teaching, raising children and cats and plants and snakes, reading, speaking publicly about MS and depression, even playing bridge with people patient and honorable enough to let me scatter cards every which way without sneaking a peek. Lest I begin to sound like Pollyanna, however, let me say that I don't like having MS. I hate it. My life holds realities, harsh ones, some of them, that no right-minded human being ought to accept without grumbling. One of them is fatigue. I know of no one with MS who does not complain of bone weariness. In a disease that presents an astonishing variety of symptoms, fatigue seems to be a common factor. I wake up in the morning feeling the way most people do at the end of a bad day, and I take it from there. As a result, I spend a lot of time in extremis, and impatient with limitation, I tend to ignore my fatigue until my body breaks down in some way and forces rest. Then I miss picnics, dinner parties, poetry readings, the brief visits of old friends from out of town. The offspring of a puritanical tradition of exceptional venerability, I cannot view these lapses without shame. My life often seems a series of small failures to do as I ought. I lead, on the whole, an ordinary life, probably rather like the one I would have led had I not had MS. I am lucky that my predilections were already solitary, sedentary, and bookish, unlike the world-famous French cellist I have read about, or the young woman I talked with one long afternoon who wanted only to be a jockey. I had just begun graduate school when I found out something was wrong with me, and I have remained, interminably, a graduate student. Perhaps I would not have if I'd thought I had the stamina to return to a full-time job as a technical editor, but I've enjoyed my studies. In addition to studying, I teach writing courses. I also teach medical students how to give neurological examinations. I pick up freelance editing jobs here and there. I have raised a foster son and sent him into the world where he has made me two grandbabies, and I am still escorting my daughter and son through adolescence. I go to Mass every Saturday. I am a superb, if messy, cook. I am also an enthusiastic laundress, capable of sorting a hamper full of clothes into five subtly differentiated piles, but a terrible housekeeper. I can do italic writing and, in an emergency, bathe an oil-soaked cat. I play a fiendish game of Scrabble. When I have the time and the money, I like to sit on my front steps with my husband, drinking amaretto and smoking a cigar, 
as we imagine our counterparts in Leningrad and make sure that the sun gets down once more behind the sharp, childish scrawl of the Tucson Mountains. This lively plenty has its bleak complement, of course, in all the things I can no longer do. I will never run again, except in dreams, and one day I may have to write that I will never walk again. I like to go camping, but I can't follow George and the children along the trails that wander out of a campsite through the desert or into the mountains. In fact, even on the level, I've learned never to check the weather or try to hold a coherent conversation. I need all my attention for my wayward feet. Of late, I have begun to catch myself wondering how people can propel themselves without canes. With only one usable hand, I have to select my clothing with care, not so much for style as for ease of ingress and egress. And even so, dressing can be laborious. I can no longer do fine stitchery, pick up babies, play the piano, braid my hair. I am immobilized by acute attacks of depression, which may or may not be physiologically related to MS, but are certainly its logical concomitant. These two elements, the plenty and the privation, are never pure, nor are the delight and wretchedness that accompany them. Almost every pickle that I get into as a result of my weakness and clumsiness, and I get into plenty, is funny as well as maddening and sometimes painful. I recall one May afternoon when a friend and I were going out for a drink after finishing up at school. As we were climbing into opposite sides of my car, chatting, I tripped and fell, flat and hard, onto the asphalt parking lot, my abrupt departure interrupting him in mid-sentence. "'Where'd you go?' he called as he came around the back of the car to find me hauling myself up by the doorframe. "'Are you all right?' "'Yes,' I told him. "'I was fine, just a bit rattly,' and we drove off to find a shady patio and some beer. When I got home an hour or so later, my daughter greeted me with, "'What have you done to yourself?' I looked down. One elbow of my white turtleneck with the green froggies, one knee of my white trousers, one white knee sock— were blood-soaked. We peeled off the clothes and inspected the damage, which was nasty enough, but not alarming. That part wasn't funny. The abrasions took a long time to heal, and one got a little infected. Even so, when I think of my friend talking earnestly, suddenly, to the hot, thin air, while I dropped from his view as though through a trap door, I find the image as silly as something from a Marx Brothers movie. I may find it easier than other cripples to amuse myself because I live propped by the acceptance and the assistance and, sometimes, the amusement of those around me. Grocery clerks tear my checks out of my checkbook for me, and sales clerks find chairs to put into dressing rooms when I want to try on clothes. The people I work with make sure I teach at times when I am least likely to be fatigued, in places I can get to, with the materials I need. My students, with one anonymous exception, in an end-of-the-semester evaluation, have been unperturbed by my disability. Some even like it. One was immensely cheered by the information that I paint my own fingernails. She decided, she told me, that if I could go to such trouble over fine details, she could keep on writing essays. 
I suppose I became some sort of bright-fingered muse. She wrote good essays, too. The most important struts in the framework of my existence, of course, are my husband and children. Dismayingly few marriages survive the MS test. And why should they? Most 22- and 19-year-olds, like George and me, can vow in clear conscience, after a childhood of chickenpox and summer colds, to keep one another in sickness and in health so long as they both shall live. Not many are equipped for catastrophe. The dismay, the depression, the extra work, the boredom that a degenerative disease can insinuate into a relationship. And our society, with its emphasis on fun and its association of fun with physical performance, offers little encouragement for a whole spouse to stay with a crippled partner. Children experience similar stresses when faced with a crippled parent, and they are more helpless, since parents and children can't usually get divorced. They hate, of course, to be different from their peers, and the child whose mother is tacking down the aisle of a school auditorium packed with proud parents like a Cape Cod dinghy in a stiff breeze jolly well stands out in a crowd. Deprived of legal divorce, the child can at least deny the mother's disability, even her existence, forgetting to tell her about recitals and PTA meetings, refusing to accompany her to stores or church or the movies, never inviting friends to the house. Many do. But I've been limping along for ten years now, and so far George and the children are still at my left elbow, holding tight. Anne and Matthew vacuum floors and dust furniture and haul trash and rake up dog droppings and button my cuffs and bake lasagna and toll house cookies with just enough grumbling so I know that they don't have brain fever. And far from hiding me, they're forever dragging me by racks of fancy clothes or through teeming school corridors or welcoming gaggles of friends while I'm wandering through the house in Anne's filmy pink baby doll pajamas. George generally calls before he brings someone home, but he does just as many dumb, thankless chores as the children. And they all yell at me, laugh at some of my jokes, write me funny letters when we're apart. In short, treat me as an ordinary human being for whom they have some use. I think they like me. Unless they're faking. Faking. There's the rub. Tugging at the fringes of my consciousness always is the terror that people are kind to me only because I'm a cripple. My mother almost shattered me once with that instinct mothers have, blind, I think, in this case, but unerring nonetheless, for striking blows along the fault lines of their children's hearts by telling me in an attack on my selfishness we all have to make allowances for you, of course, because of the way you are. From the distance of a couple of years, I have to admit that I haven't any idea just what she meant, and I'm not sure that she knew either. She was awfully angry. But at the time, as the words thudded home, I felt my worst fear suddenly realized. I could bear being called selfish. I am but I couldn't bear 
the corroboration that those around me were doing, in fact, what I'd always suspected them of doing, professing fondness while silently putting up with me because of the way I am. A cripple. I've been a little cracked ever since. Along with this fear that people are secretly accepting shoddy goods comes a relentless pressure to please, to prove myself worth the burdens I impose, I guess, or to build a substantial account of goodwill against which I may write drafts in times of need. Part of the pressure arises from social expectations. In our society, anyone who deviates from the norm had better find some way to compensate. Like fat people, who are expected to be jolly, cripples must bear their lot meekly and cheerfully. A grumpy cripple isn't playing by the rules. And much of the pressure is self-generated. Early on, I vowed that if I had to have MS, by God, I was going to do it well. This is a class act, ladies and gentlemen. No tears, no recriminations, no faint-heartedness. One way and another, then, I wind up feeling like Tiny Tim, peering over the edge of the table at the Christmas goose, waving my crutch, piping down God's blessing on us all. Only sometimes, I don't want to play Tiny Tim. I'd rather be Caliban, a most scurvy monster. Fortunately, no, at home, no one much cares whether I'm a good cripple or a bad cripple, as long as I make vichyssoise with fair regularity. One evening, several years ago, Anne was reading at the dining room table while I cooked dinner. As I opened a can of tomatoes, the can slipped in my left hand, and juice spattered me and the counter with bloody spots. Fatigued and infuriated, I bellowed, I'm so sick of being crippled! Anne glanced at me over the top of her book. There now, she said. Do you feel better? Yes, I said. Yes, I do. She went back to her reading. I felt better. That's about all the attention my scurviness ever gets. Because I hate being crippled, I sometimes hate myself for being a cripple. Over the years, I have come to expect, even accept, attacks of violent self-loathing. Luckily, in general, our society no longer connects deformity and disease directly with evil, though a charismatic once told me that I have MS because a devil is in me. And so I'm allowed to move largely at will, even among small children. But I'm not sure that this revision of attitude has been particularly helpful. Physical imperfection, even freed of moral disapprobation, still defies and violates the ideal, especially for women, whose confinement in their bodies as objects of desire is far from over. Each age, of course, has its ideal, and I doubt that ours is any better or worse than any other. Today's ideal woman, who lives on the glossy pages of dozens of magazines, seems to be between the ages of 18 and 25. Her hair has body, her teeth flash white, her breath smells minty, her underarms are dry. She has a career, but is still a fabulous cook, especially of meals that take less than 20 minutes to prepare. She does not ordinarily appear to have a husband or children. 
She is trim and deeply tanned. She jogs, swims, plays tennis, rides a bicycle, sails, but does not bowl. She travels widely, even to out-of-the-way places like Finland and Samoa, always in the company of the ideal man, who possesses a nearly identical set of characteristics. There are a few exceptions. Though usually white and often blonde, she may be black, Hispanic, Asian, or Native American, so long as she is unusually sleek. She may be old, provided she is selling a laxative, or is Lauren Bacall. If she is selling a detergent, she may be married and have a flock of strikingly messy children. But she is never a cripple. Like many women I know, I have always had an uneasy relationship with my body. I was not a popular child, largely, I think now, because I was peculiar, intelligent, intense, moody, shy, given to unexpected actions and inexplicable notions and emotions. But as I entered adolescence, I believed myself unpopular because I was homely, my breasts too flat, my mouth too wide, my hips too narrow, my clothing never quite right in fit or style. I was not, in fact, particularly ugly, old photographs inform me, though I was well off the ideal. But I carried this sense of self-alienation with me into adulthood, where it regenerated in response to the depredations of MS. Even with my brace, I walk with a limp so pronounced that, seeing myself on the videotape of a television program on the disabled, I couldn't believe that anything but an inchworm could make progress humping along like that. My shoulders droop, and my pelvis thrusts forward as I try to balance myself upright, throwing my frame into a bony S. As a result of contractures, one shoulder is higher than the other, and I carry one arm bent in front of me, the fingers curled into a claw. My left arm and leg have wasted into pipe stems, and I try always to keep them covered. When I think about how my body must look to others especially to men to whom I have been trained to display myself, I feel ludicrous, even loathsome. At my age, however, I don't spend much time thinking about my appearance, the burning egocentricity of adolescence which assures one that all the world is looking all the time, has passed, thank God, and I'm generally too caught up in what I'm doing to step back as I used to and watch myself as though upon a stage. I'm also too old to believe in the accuracy of self-image. I know that I'm not a hideous crone, that, in fact, when I'm rested, well-dressed, and well-made up, I look fine. The self-loathing I feel is neither physically nor intellectually substantial. What I hate is not me, but a disease. I am not a disease. And a disease is not, at least not single-handedly, going to determine who I am, though at first it seemed to be going to. Adjusting to a chronic incurable illness, I have moved through a process similar to that outlined by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in On Death and Dying. The major difference, and it is far more significant than most people recognize, is that I can't be sure of the outcome, as the terminally ill cancer patient can. Research studies indicate that, with proper medical care, I may achieve a normal lifespan. And in our society, with its vision of death as the ultimate evil, worse even than decrepitude, 
the response to such news is, oh, well, at least you're not going to die. Are there worse things than dying? I think that there may be. I think of two women I know, both with MS, both enough older than I to have served me as models. One took to her bed several years ago and has been there ever since. Although she can sit in a high-backed wheelchair, because she is incontinent, she refuses to go out at all, even though incontinence pants, which are readily available at any pharmacy, could protect her from embarrassment. Instead, she stays at home and insists that her husband, a small, quiet man, a retired civil servant, stay there with her, except for a quick weekly foray to the supermarket. The other woman, whose illness was diagnosed when she was 18, a nursing student engaged to a young doctor, finished her training, married her doctor, accompanied him to Germany when he was in the service, bore three sons and a daughter, now grown and gone. When she can, she travels with her husband. She plays bridge, embroiders, swims regularly. She works, like me, as a symptomatic patient instructor of medical students in neurology. Guess which woman I hope to be. At the beginning, I thought about having MS almost incessantly. And because of the unpredictable course of the disease, my thoughts were always terrified. Each night, I'd get into bed wondering whether I'd get out again the next morning, whether I'd be able to see, to speak, to hold a pen between my fingers. Knowing that the day might come when I'd be physically incapable of killing myself, I thought perhaps I ought to do so right away, while I still had the strength. Gradually, I came to understand that the Nancy who might one day lie inert under a bedsheet arms and legs paralyzed, unable to feed or bathe herself, unable to reach out for a gun, a bottle of pills, was not the Nancy I was at present, and that I could not presume to make decisions for that future Nancy, who might well not want in the least to die. Now the only provision I've made for the future Nancy is that when the time comes— and it is likely to come in the form of pneumonia, friend to the weak and the old. I am not to be treated with machines and medications. If she is unable to communicate by then, I hope she will be satisfied with these terms. Thinking all the time about having MS grew tiresome and intrusive, especially in the large and tragic mode in which I was accustomed to considering my plight. Months and even years went by without catastrophe, at least without one related to MS. And really, I was awfully busy, what with George and children and snakes and students and poems. And I hadn't the time, let alone the inclination, to devote myself to being a disease. Two, the richer my life became, the funnier it seemed, as though there were some connection between largesse and laughter. And so my tragic stance began to waver until... Even with the aid of a brace and a cane, I couldn't hold it for very long at a time. After several years, I was satisfied with my adjustment. I had suffered my grief and fury and terror, I thought, but now I was at ease with my lot. Then, one summer day, I set out with George and the children across the desert for a vacation in California. Partway to Yuma, I became aware that my right leg felt funny. 
I think I've had an exacerbation, I told George. What shall we do, he asked. I think we'd better get the hell to California, I said, because I don't know whether I'll ever make it again. So we went on, to San Diego and then to Orange, up the Pacific Coast Highway to Santa Cruz, across to Yosemite, down to Sequoia and Joshua Tree, and so back over the desert to home. It was a fine two-week trip, filled with friends and fair weather, and I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Though I did, in fact, make it back to California two years later. Nor would there have been any point in missing it, since in MS, once the symptoms have appeared, the neurological damage has been done, and there's no way to predict or prevent that damage. The incident spoiled my self-satisfaction, however. It renewed my grief and fury and terror, and I learned that one never finishes adjusting to MS. I don't know now why I thought one would. One does not, after all, finish adjusting to life. And MS is simply a fact of my life. Not my favorite fact, of course. But as ordinary as my nose and my tropical fish and my yellow Mazda station wagon. It may at any time get worse. But no amount of worry or anticipation can prepare me for a new loss. My life is a lesson in losses. I learn one at a time. And I had best be patient in the learning, since I'll have to do it, like it or not. As any rock fan knows, you can't always get what you want, particularly when you have MS. You can't, for example, get cured. In recent years, researchers and the organizations that fund research have started to pay MS some attention, even though it isn't fatal. Perhaps they have begun to see that life is something other than a quantitative phenomenon, that one may be very much alive for a very long time in a life that isn't worth living. The researchers have made some progress toward understanding the mechanism of the disease. It may well be an autoimmune reaction triggered by a slow-acting virus. But they are nowhere near its prevention, control, or cure. And most of us want to be cured. Some, unable to accept incurability, grasp at one treatment after another, no matter how bizarre. Megavitamin therapy, gluten-free diet, injections of cobra venom, hypothermal suits, lymphocytophoresis, hyperbaric chambers. Many treatments are probably harmless enough, but none are curative. The absence of a cure often makes MS patients bitter toward their doctors. Doctors are, after all, the priests of modern society, the new shamans, whose business is to heal. And many an MS patient rose from one to another, searching for the good doctor who will make him well. Doctors, too, think of themselves as healers. And for this reason, many have trouble dealing with MS patients, whose disease in its intransigence defeats their aims and mocks their skills. Too few doctors, it is true, treat their patients as whole human beings. But the reverse is also true. I have always tried to be gentle with my doctors, who often have more at stake in terms of ego than I do. I may be frustrated, maddened, depressed by the incurability of my disease but I am not diminished by it, and they are. When I push myself up from my seat in the waiting room and stumble toward them, I incarnate the limitation of their powers. 
the least I can do is refuse to press on their tenderest spots. This gentleness is part of the reason that I'm not sorry to be a cripple. I didn't have it before. Perhaps I'd have developed it anyway. How could I know such a thing? And I wish I had more of it. But I'm glad of what I have. It has opened and enriched my life enormously. This sense that my frailty and need must be mirrored in others, that in searching for and shaping a stable core in a life wrenched by change and loss, change and loss, I must recognize the same process under individual conditions in the lives around me. I do not deprecate such knowledge, however I've come by it. All the same, if a cure were found, would I take it? In a minute. I may be a cripple, but I'm only occasionally a loony and never a saint. Anyway, in my brand of theology, God doesn't give bonus points for a limp. I'd take a cure. I just don't need one. A friend who also has MS startled me once by asking, Do you ever say to yourself, Why me, Lord? No, Michael, I don't, I told him. Because whenever I try, the only response I can think of is, why not? If I could make a cosmic deal, whom would I put in my place? What in my life would I give up in exchange for sound limbs and a thrilling rush of energy? No one. Nothing. I might as well do the job myself now that I'm getting the hang of it. Okay, so first let me just say where I get the goosebumps, or the horripilation, if I may share a terrible example of specific word choice, since that word, while it's unusual and therefore interesting and maybe even fancy, has much too much of horror in it to be described the kind of positive feeling I get from the power of Dr. Maris's words. It's the single sentence paragraph, about two-thirds of the way through, just five words. I... Am not a disease. Gets me every time. This time too. In fact, when I teach this, that paragraph is my goal, and it has sometimes been my finish line, because that, I think, I hope, is where the point becomes clear, the thing I think Mares was doing in this essay with her diction. Since I take a very long time going through essays like this, paragraph by paragraph, and even sentence by sentence, and in this case at some points, word by word, and since this is a fairly long essay, it's about 5,500 words, I usually start feeling like I've taken up too much class time before we analyze this one all the way through to the end. So if students can figure out what I want them to grasp by the time we reach this paragraph, I will sometimes call an end to the analysis right there. Okay, so what is she doing in this essay, apart from defining an abstract term she uses to label herself? Obviously, she's using diction in terms of specific word choice, because one of the essential ideas in the essay is the word cripple, which she uses to define herself, but not anyone else, and which she claims not to care if other people use. But the other aspect of diction that plays an important part in this is formality. So, there are definable levels of formality we use in spoken and written English for specific purposes, and there's a whole lesson I teach on it before we get to this essay. I'm not going to go through the whole thing here, just going to focus on the main two levels of formality in writing and speaking. Uh, there are actually five levels I describe in the full lesson. I use the ideas from The Five Clocks by Martin Juice, which someday I will read personally, but which were summarized for me in an AP summer seminar. 
The two levels of formality are, simply, formal and informal. Formal speech is what a speaker uses to transmit information to an audience. It is characterized by declarative sentences, correct grammar and a lack of contractions, an objective, impersonal tone, the use of jargon where appropriate, and a clear assumption that the speaker is an expert and the audience is interested in the subject because the speaker doesn't do much to make the subject interesting, simply transmits information. The manner in which I am speaking right now is formal because I am doing precisely that, transmitting information to an audience that I assume is interested. Informal, or casual, diction is the level of formality used by people who want to connect with an audience emotionally. It's the exact opposite of formal diction, mostly. There's slang, there's contractions, there's usually bad grammar, sometimes intentionally bad grammar, because one of the ways we connect to people is by using language that only those people are connected to, and which therefore blocks other people who are not connected to the language from being connected to the speaker. What I mean is, if I'm talking to my buddies about something that we like, and I want to make sure that somebody listening in isn't part of the gang, I might use language that I know my buddies will accept, but other people won't. So, if I'm a high school student sitting in the lunchroom with my gamer pals, for instance, I might use gamer slang that they will understand, but somebody walking by or sitting at the other end of the lunch table won't understand. I'll say something like 360 no scope, or that guy seems kind of sus. And if somebody asks, what does that mean? I can decide if I want to explain and therefore draw them into the group or say, never mind, you wouldn't get it and keep them out of the group. That's casual diction. It's not used to transmit information from an expert to an interested audience, but rather to transmit information within a group that are already socially and emotionally connected, and to strengthen the social-emotional bonds within that group, or to ensure that someone else is kept out of the group, if that's my desire. This is one of the reasons why youth slang generally includes incorrect grammar, which was the point I was trying to make, sorry. Because it pushes away adults, who tend to insist on correct grammar, especially in school. So when kids use incorrect grammar, it pushes away the adults. It shows the adults that they are not welcome, and it reassures the other kids that we're not talking to each other the same way we talk to grown-ups, because you and I, fellow kid, have a different connection. And of course, we've never used the phrase fellow kid. Anyway, it is also why young people start using cuss words as much as possible, particularly cuss words that they know will be specifically offensive to the adults in their life. Because that way, they show their friends that they are cool and are not trying to suck up to the grown-ups or sound like teachers and everybody who thinks they're better than kids who talk wrong. And it's one of the reasons why it's a bit jarring when I say talk wrong, which is grammatically incorrect, and I should know it, which doesn't gel with my position as an authority on English who should be using formal diction to talk about it. That makes me sound slangy, which either makes me seem cool if you want to feel a closer emotional connection to me, or like I'm trying too hard, if you don't want to. Okay, that's the point. Formal diction is mostly for information. Casual diction is more for relationships, for connection. So, Mares uses both formal and casual diction in this piece. Most writers use some combination of both levels of diction, because most authors want to connect to their audience and catch their interest, which both come easier with casual diction where you can seem more human on the same level as your audience, and where you can do more emotional things, like show your feelings and be vulnerable and make jokes. And then the authors want to impart some information, which works better when it is done formally, 
as it makes the information and the speaker both seem more reliable. But Mares takes this to another level, because she has two distinct purposes in this piece, and she uses different dictions to achieve her two purposes. You can see it right away, because Mares starts with a joke. It's almost a slapstick joke about herself falling in a bathroom. She talks about herself in the first person, which is informal, because it's about a specific individual human person the audience can relate to and connect with, not about a subject of objective information. She laughs at herself and invites us to do the same, which is both emotional and vulnerable, and also a little bit risque because she's violating taboos, both in talking about the bathroom and also in joking about her own disability, about falling onto the toilet when she reaches for her cane. It's an anecdote. It's not dry, formal, objective information, but it's something meant to bring that information to life, to make it concrete and relatable. A story about one specific real human being. In the middle of that little human interest story, there is some hint of her larger purpose, because she makes the comment that she was free to laugh aloud at herself because nobody else was there. She says if other people had seen her, she'd have been hot with chagrin. So, while the main goal of this paragraph is to ease the audience's discomfort with this taboo subject material, which we know from the title, of course, on being a cripple, and then to give us something to relate to, because who hasn't fallen down and laughed at themselves? But we still recognize that this is about society's perception, and how that affects us, especially in ways that sort of take away our joy. The second paragraph, then, is more formal. It is not purely formal, because it is still about Mares herself, and it gets into some personal, subjective, emotional descriptions, which again help us to connect socially and emotionally, but are not really informational. But the fact that she starts with naming her subject with one of the driest, most esoteric areas of English shows that we are not just talking about a person's life. Now we're being taught information about semantics. First, the matter of semantics. I am a cripple. I choose this word to name me. I choose from among several possibilities, the most common of which are handicapped and disabled. I made the choice a number of years ago without thinking unaware of my motives for doing so. Even now, I'm not sure what those motives are, but I recognize that they are complex and not entirely flattering. People crippled or not, wince at the word cripple, as they do not at handicapped or disabled. Perhaps I want them to wince. I want them to see me as a tough customer, one to whom the fates, gods, viruses have not been kind, but who can face the brutal truth of her existence squarely. As a cripple, I swagger. Do you hear it? When she talks about choosing the word for herself, that's more personal. But then talking about the most common terms, generalized, not personal, and the emotionally detached description of her choice as coming from unclear but complicated and not entirely flattering motives, that's formal diction. Nobody talks in lightities to their friends. Notice that I use the official term lightities to name something that is worded as a negation of the opposite rather than a positive affirmation statement. Like when someone asks how you are, and instead of saying good, you say not bad. That's lightities. Though it's a more casual use of it, more comparable to Merz's phrase would be, not entirely unwell, thank you. And that is not casual diction. But she does end with more personal casual description of herself and her motives, wanting people to wince, to see her as a tough customer. There's some slang. And then one of my all-time favorite sentences, as a cripple, I swagger. What a fantastic word, swagger. 
It's gotten even more effective in the last decade as teenagers have taken up the word swag to describe someone's attitude. I've pointed out that she is referring to the same idea with swagger, but I don't try to define it more specifically than that. Casual diction is more about emotion and relationships, after all, not about specific definitions of terms. It's also another excellent joke at her own expense, since swagger implies exaggerated motion and sounds like stagger. She's literally describing her movement and making it sound badass. And there's me trying to show that I'm cooler than most teachers because I will say ass. Did it work? Am am I cool? Rolling your eyes is also casual diction, by the way. Formal diction has far less unspoken communication through vocal tone and body language. That's mostly in the casual realm because you assume your audience understands your gestures and whatnot. So, anyway. Mares gets even more formal in the third paragraph as she gets into the specific etymology and meaning of her chosen term, cripple, and differentiates it from the more common euphemisms handicapped and disabled. One thing about this essay is it is now 35 years old and uses some terms that are no longer in regular parlance. I think the term handicapped only serves in naming parking spaces. But I love the reference she makes to Kurt Vonnegut's brilliant short story Harrison Bergeron, where the handicapper general is a dystopian tyrant trying to eliminate all natural gifts in order to make all people equally bad at everything, and would indeed be a terrible vision of God. And even more effective for me is the correlation of the terrible phrase differently abled with a changing politically correct term for what used to be called third world nations regarding their relative levels of development ending with some of the driest sarcasm i know people have continued to starve in those countries during the shift some realities do not obey the dictates of language sarcasm by the way often relies on artificially inflated diction Because to make people realize that your words are not to be taken at face value, you need to show somehow that there is a disconnect between the usual meaning of those words and the way you are using them. One way to do that is to make an extremely emotional statement without showing any definite emotion. So, yes, thank you, I am having a lovely time. Absolutely cracking. Could not be more ecstatic to be here right now. That should be cheerful, but by draining the emotion from it in my tone, I make it sarcastic. This is harder in pure writing where you don't have a vocal tone, but you can achieve it the same way by using formal, objective diction about something that should be casual. Because the casual thing should be emotional, like the idea of people starving. But then you use formal diction where you take emotion out of it and make it purely informational. Now it feels ironic, sarcastic, insincere. The next paragraph, again, bounces back and forth between formal and informal, talking about herself using first person and contractions and officially poor grammar in the first sentence, mine is one of them, that has a pronoun, mine, with an unclear antecedent. It's not that unclear because we know she's referring back to the last sentence of the previous paragraph and some realities. But it irks the grammarian in me, which is exactly her purpose, because tweaking the grammarians is how you bond with the informal folks out there in the audience. And then she gets far more informative and sort of fancy talking with sentences like, I subscribe to George Orwell's thesis that the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. And I refuse to participate in the degeneration of the language to the extent that I deny that I have lost anything in the course of this calamitous disease. I refuse to pretend that the only differences between you and me are the various ordinary ones that distinguish any one person from another. 
That's not purely formal, because again, she is using first person, and she sounds angry in that I refuse to pretend. And starting sentences with and, which is ungrammatical once more. But subscribing to a thesis is jargon. And refusing to participate in the degeneration of language to an extent is a very objective, informative, formal statement of position. Also, a wonderful point about differently abled, which means nothing, since all of us are differently abled. And why use words if you're really not going to say anything? The end of this paragraph does get interesting, though, when Maris says that she would never use the word cripple to describe another person, that she would use handicapped or disabled, which are the two terms she just discarded for herself, and will also accept them addressed to her by other people. This seems like a contradiction, and the fact that it is not is important. Because her point here is not the specific correct term that should be used in all instances to describe someone. Her point is that the term that she prefers is the one she chose herself. She won't apply it to other people because other people did not choose that term for themselves. And other people describing her cannot be expected to know what term she chose for herself. And so the best substitute for her chosen term is one of the common terms that at least hints at the truth. This same policy should probably be applied to any terms that are meaningful to a person's identity, such as race or gender. Just saying. Also, at the other end of this paragraph, we see another aspect of rhetoric that Maris uses remarkably well, which is the list. So lists are funny things. There is a very distinct set of rules that go with lists, and because of that, authors can break the rules, or I guess just not obey the rules, and create several different effects. So the distinct rules about lists are, They need to have three items. They need to include a conjunction like and between the second and third items. See how I broke the list rules there? I only had two items and no conjunction between the second and third item. So the list feels unfinished. You want a third item here. Lists need to have three items. They need to include a conjunction like and between the second and third items. And the items need to go together and to be in an order that makes sense, like least to greatest, bad to worst, etc. If you have more than three items, then the list feels overly full, maybe because there are so many things just pouring out, or maybe because the list is somewhat haphazard and chaotic. If you have a full or overfull list without a conjunction before the last item, then it feels like the list was cut off unfinished, which implies that it could just keep going, like there might be a bunch more items that could go on the list. If you use conjunctions between all the items, which is called polysyndeton, and please don't ever remember that. I like Italian food and Mexican food and Chinese food and French food and Thai food. Then I can create a couple of other possible effects, maybe a sense of breathlessness or an improvisational feel like I'm just coming up with things off the top of my head. Or maybe that each of the items is of equal importance and so on. Ending a list with etc. or and so on also has definite effects, by the way, but Maris doesn't do that, so we'll leave it out. The list Maris uses here is, Society is no readier to accept crippledness than to accept death, war, sex, sweat, or wrinkles. So there's a conjunction before the last item, so the list seems definitely concluded. There are five items, so it feels overfull. Like, there are maybe too many things that society won't accept, And since she's inserting crippledness into that list, it's extra full. Which is partly her point, right? That society is weirded out by stuff that we should accept. That this list is longer than it should be. And then there's the order and the categories of items. Death, bad. War, 
worse. Sex, uh, not so bad? Wait, is that really something we don't accept? Because there isn't society without sex. And then sweat. Hold on, what's wrong with sweat? I mean, it smells bad, but... And it's connected to sex, obviously, though not only that, and I can't talk about that more specifically because it's, you know, inappropriate. And then wrinkles, something that we tell ourselves we accept, but really, the only thing I need to say to show that our society does not accept wrinkles is Botox. People inject the toxin from botulism into their faces in order to eliminate wrinkles. It's like we give our foreheads toxic food poisoning. That's how we feel about wrinkles. But is that really the same reaction we have to sex? Or to death? Or war? Really? So, where does crippledness fall in this? Is it a terrible thing like war? A universally sad thing like death? A kind of gross thing like sweat? A thing we just need to get over like wrinkles? A thing I won't talk about like sex? And Mares packs all of those ideas, all of those reactions, all of those interesting questions into this one list. It's really impressive. So, after naming herself and explaining why she has so named herself, Mares tells her story. And appropriately, the next two paragraphs are quite casual. They're about her personally, and they provide a dozen different ways we can connect to her as a person. The list of activities she pursued in her active youth, moving along the list from the youngest activities, climbing trees and playing hopscotch, up to more adult ones like sailing. Also notice the length of the list and the lack of a final conjunction, because this list of her physical activities could keep going and going. Then her particular distaste for team sports, which she nevertheless played, although not well because she describes herself as under the basketball hoop, which is not a good place to be, and behind a field hockey stick, right? Not holding a field hockey stick, but behind it. There's a separation and a, a, a failure to utilize the thing. That is exactly her point. And look at how cool, how, how cool those effects are, those little things she can do just with these tiny, small word choices, right? That's diction. And then... Uh, what else can we let? Oh, the music she gyrated to and how that also goes f- through time, right? Starting with Tab Hunter and Johnny Mathis, which is the 50s, and then ending with um, Creed's Clearwater Revival and Cream and the Rolling Stones, which are the 60s, generally speaking. Notice how much action and movement there is in this paragraph. Even the items in the final list, which represent all the important milestones in life, marriage, children, and so on, are described by movements. Walking down the aisle, pushing a baby carriage not just getting married or having a child, but the active movements that are connected to those things. The second paragraph then here, where she first suffers the onset of symptoms and then receives two diagnoses, one worse than the other truer one, is also personal, emotional, and casual. The one moment where it feels more formal and detached is her diagnosis, where she quotes the medical jargon, the episodes disseminated in space and time requisite for a diagnosis, multiple sclerosis. I think the line at the end of this paragraph, where she describes the time added on to the life she thought would be cut far too short as a gift, she and then says, I accept all gifts, is a particularly effective way to breathe life into that cliché. It shows the active element in this idea that you have to see life as a gift, not just repeat the words. You have to accept it. You have to do that. It also makes it seem pretty absurd not to do this because who wouldn't accept a gift? The paragraph following this is perhaps the clearest example in this essay of formal diction. 
Multiple sclerosis is a chronic degenerative disease of the central nervous system in which the myelin that sheathes the nerves is somehow eaten away and scar tissue forms in its place, interrupting the nerves' signals. During its course, which is unpredictable and uncontrollable, one may lose vision, hearing, speech, the ability to walk, control of bladder and or bowels, strength in any or all extremities, sensitivity to touch, vibration and or pain, potency, coordination of movements... The list of possibilities is lengthy and, yes, horrifying. One may also lose one's sense of humor. That's the easiest to lose and the hardest to survive without. So not only does this give information the audience does not have, but at this point is interested in receiving from a clearly authoritative speaker, but it uses medical jargon describing objectively and dispassionately a number of awful-sounding symptoms. And it changes from I to one, listing symptoms that don't relate to Maris's personal experience, and identifying this as pretty clearly a list of possible symptoms by the use of and or, which is not something you use to describe your own experiences, right? I don't say I am married and or single. I'm I'm just the one, right? So this is this is clearly showing it's not related to a specific person's specific individual experience. This is speaking generally, objectively, separate from people from individual people, and just giving information. Um, and I know that this isn't all related to Maris's experience because one of the symptoms is a loss of potency, which is not something that happens to women. Anyway, this formal information transfer is interrupted in the middle of the list of symptoms, which is, as Maris comments, lengthy and horrifying. And because it is interrupted here with a dash, the implication is that it keeps on going, but the author couldn't stand to continue and broke in with personal commentary ending with a joke about losing one's sense of humor. A joke with a genuine point, but which also shows that this author has not suffered that result. This is also where casual diction, a comment about the author herself, presented with the emotional impact of a joke, intrudes on the formal diction, though it is still talking about what might happen to one as a result of the disease, showing that it is more generalized than personal, it's still a bit formal. She is still speaking about most people's experiences, not really about hers. There's just a moment where she sort of nods to her own individual experience, which is why there's just this hint of casual diction there. In the fact that it's a joke, which is a casual diction thing. It's not an informative thing. So from there, the distinction between formal and casual diction gets a little bit harder to see, as the paragraphs tend to blend the two levels. The next paragraph applies the MS symptoms to Mares herself. And while it includes sentences like this, Characteristic of MS are sudden attacks called exacerbations followed by remissions, which is a formal sentence. It also compares her amigo to an electrified kitty car, which is a rather casual simile. The casual sentence, overall though I've been lucky so far, is followed by the much more formal, my world has of necessity been circumscribed by my losses, but the terrain left me has been ample enough for me to continue many of the activities that absorb me. And there are two interesting lists in this paragraph, the one between the kitty car and the lucky sentence, where three symptoms she has suffered are stated, each in their own short sentence. I no longer have much use of my left hand. Now my right side is weakening as well. I still have the blurred spot in my right eye. Each of these, isolated by itself, but echoing the one before it by adding to it with another symptom, makes it sound like she is steadily slipping away, growing worse and worse with each event. And there's a pause to help us not appreciate, but sort of absorb the impact of the things that she's going through one by one by one. It's sad. 
and to reverse that by saying that she's been lucky so far directly afterwards with another short sentence. But then this one is followed by a long and complex sentence ending with a list of activities that she enjoys. It's a little bit jarring, but it does make it feel, it changes the tone of those sentences just a little bit, that they have been sad, but then she says she's been lucky. So now we have to change our view of these sentences as particularly sad. And then she joins them into this, the the things that she enjoys, writing, teaching, raising children and cats and plants and snakes, reading, speaking publicly about MS and depression, even playing bridge with people patient and honorable enough to let me scatter cards every which way without sneaking to peek. This, again, is an extra long list, which includes a secondary long list of the things she raises, each item there listed without a comma, but with ands between each, children and cats and plants and snakes, which gives that feeling of a plentiful, chaotic mixture, which seems to fit pretty well for someone raising a variegated household like that. So notice that we have a switching back and forth, a juxtaposition, if you will, between formal and casual and also between positive and negative tones and ideas. It got pretty dark there. Then it got lighter with this joking description of Bridge and her patient friends. Though, of course, they have to be patient because of her MS. Notice the theme of her making jokes, not over-the-top jokes, but definitely moments of levity about her illness and her life. This is important to her overall purpose. And then she consciously turns back the other way. Lest I begin to sound too much like Pollyanna, the absurdly cheerful and optimistic caricature. And she states emotionally and passionately how she feels about MS. I hate it. And that short sentence has impact. We notice it. It stands out. It's powerful. She describes things she deals with, including this affecting description of her fatigue, which I suspect we can all relate to, at least in spirit, because it's casual diction for the most part. The phrase in extremis standing out as more formal jargon because nobody casually drops Latin on their friends. And my students remember this description of her fatigue long after reading this piece because they can relate to it. Then she lists things she misses. Four items without a final conjunction implying the long list could keep going. And then she has this, another of my favorite moments. The offspring of a puritanical tradition of exceptional venerability, I cannot view these lapses without shame. My life often seems a series of small failures to do as I ought. First, because I feel that last sentence in my soul. And second, because the extreme formality of that sentence helps to make her point and also show her ironic tone here. Because the content of the sentence is very personal and emotional and vulnerable, but the diction is very highfalutin. The contrast showing that she is not entirely sincere. That is, she means this, but she doesn't agree with it. It's that ironic state that we all know where we know what's wrong, but we still can't fix the problem, because knowing is only half the battle, and sometimes you lose the other half. Uh, If it isn't clear, and it usually isn't to my students, so I'll tell you too, the point she's making here is that Americans have an ethos passed down partly from the Puritans of the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock, who believed that man's existence should consist of toil and prayer and nothing else. And this Puritan work ethic tells us that taking time off of work or even backing out of social obligations because we don't feel well is weak and on some level sinful and therefore something to be ashamed of. The Puritans also frowned upon close emotional ties and, as you might expect, tended to be extremely formal in their manner and speech. 
hence this sentence, reflecting the Puritan's tone, but quite far away from Mares's preferred tone to show the irony that she still feels affected by that Puritan formality, that Puritan ethos of what she ought to do. And ought is a very Puritan word. All right, following this are two more paragraphs that are mostly casual, mostly personal, which first describe Mares as ordinary, a person of solitary, sedentary, and bookish habits, and then make her sound like a total badass with this amazing list, again, separated into single sentences, putting an emphatic pause between each one so we can appreciate all the things that she is, the list going on and on, because, of course, she has many things, including a superb cook, an enthusiastic laundress, and someone who plays a fiendish game of Scrabble. Then, again, turning the tone in the other direction, she describes things she has lost, including this sentence that stands out to me. I can no longer do fine stitchery, pick up babies, play the piano, braid my hair. Four items, no final conjunction. And that pick up babies is a heartbreaker. Then Mares tells us straight out exactly what she's doing. These two elements, the plenty and the privation, are never pure, nor are the delight and wretchedness that accompany them. That is why she keeps switching tones. She keeps switching levels of diction and emotional impact because this essay, this subject, this person is not just one thing or the other. So please remember that while I'm making distinctions between passages here and their addiction level and everything, I'm exaggerating to some extent and making artificial distinctions to some extent because none of this is pure, neither the tone nor the diction. It's all mixed up together. Mares goes on to tell a funny story that doesn't end funny when she vanishes from sight in mid-sentence, but ends up blood-soaked and with an infected wound. And then she talks about her family and friends and students, and again, it is a mixture of sorrow and joy, and of formality and informality. The paragraph is mostly formal, mostly informational and impersonal, though there are some personal touches, particularly that wonderful metaphor describing her movement to a, uh, comparing her movement to a Cape Cod dinghy in a stiff breeze. And shout out for using the phrase jolly well, essentially formal like most Britishisms. But this paragraph is mostly formal because she's not specifically speaking about herself and her experience, except for the comment about the dinghy. All the rest of this is about how most people handle MS, how most people handle marriages like this. And so it's formal. It's not just about her. But then the next paragraph is entirely personal, almost entirely informal about her individual experience, her particular family. She names them. She has specific references. Also, she has a list of the things that her kids do that is long, overly long, and connected by ands, so it feels like there's a thousand things that her kids do that are, that are chores that they do around the house to help out, right? Um, she has specific references. She makes the almost disturbingly casual reference to herself and her daughter's filmy pink baby doll pajamas. It's very sweet, and it's very touching. Until she gets to the end and mentions the thought that her family are faking. And then she has an ellipsis there for an extra long pause so that we all can think about that for a second. Because, interestingly enough, while this is certainly about her life and her experience, this is also another relatable, connectable moment. And so there again, that social-emotional connection. That's why it's casual. She follows this with an extremely personal, emotional confession that she wonders if people are only pretending to be kind when they are actually only putting up with her because she is a cripple. 
Again, it's something that I suspect we can all relate to, at least in spirit. It's mostly informal, as you would expect of an emotionally honest and vulnerable moment, though after describing the hurtful comment from her mother, and I love that she says she's not sure exactly what it meant, but it still hurt, and that we can all certainly relate to. Then she generalizes the ideas to social norms, with more formal diction at that moment, because she's no longer focusing on her own experience. Now it is about how everyone treats everyone. Part of the pressure arises from social expectations. In our society, anyone who deviates from the norm had better find some way to compensate. Quite a bloodless way to describe anyone, particularly someone who suffers a degenerative nerve disease. Anyone who deviates from the norm. And again, this inappropriately formal sentence in the middle of more informal sentences that include first person and contractions and improper grammar, like the sentence fragment, no tears, no recriminations, no faintheartedness, or the intentionally strange sentence, a grumpy cripple isn't playing by the rules. This formal sentence is ironic. It is sarcastic. The artificially inflated diction is our clue. She does not really believe that you can describe someone as deviating from the norm. So from there, she makes some classic literary references as a way of showing how our society views cripples and pretty much always has because she goes back to Shakespeare. So the last 500 years, she gives us the two extremes of Tiny Tim and Caliban. And then she goes very personal again, talking about how her family deals with her and her scurviness, showing that it isn't either literary exaggeration, but the interaction of real people. It's casual. We relate. This is followed by a very formal, very detached, and generalized informational section. Though, since the diction level is never pure, there is some wonderful sarcastic humor in here. Describing our society's beauty standards and our ideal woman. It's amusing to me to recognize that this image is one I recognize from L.L. Bean catalogs and the like from my youth, which is about when she wrote this. But I still see the same things today, 35 years after Maris wrote this, because this is still how we think women should be, at least in part. Then she gets personal, but her diction and description remain largely clinical and objective. And the detachment in that voice, describing her posture and shape and movement and her general appearance, is part of what helps make her point, because it is cruel in its callousness, as our society is in turning people from individuals to a mere set of characteristics on a spectrum, measurements and shapes and colors and such, Marks on a scale. She ends with her rating of herself. I feel ludicrous, even loathsome. But then she says this. At my age, however, I don't spend much time thinking about my appearance. The burning egocentricity of adolescence, which assures one that all the world is looking all the time, has passed. Thank God and I'm generally too caught up in what I'm doing to step back, as I used to, and watch myself as though upon a stage. I'm also too old to believe in the accuracy of self-image. I know that I'm not a hideous crone, that in fact, when I'm rested, well-dressed, and well-made up, I look fine. The self-loathing I feel is neither physically nor intellectually substantial. What I hate is not me, but a disease. I am not a disease. And that's it. That's the moment that gives me the shivers. I love it. 
So, as I do in class, I suspect that I have gone on too long with this, and by getting caught up in Mares' wonderful writing, I have obscured the main point, which is the way that Mares uses diction. Is it clear to you now what she's doing? If not, let me spoil it. Nancy Mares has two main goals here. Her essential purpose in this essay is definition. She is defining both the word cripple and herself as one. Definition requires both specificity and generalization. You have to be as specific as possible about what the term actually means with examples in context. And you have to generalize that meaning so that we understand the term in all contexts and what each example in each context has in common. So she is talking about MS in general and herself in specific. And she wants to be clear that when she is giving us information about the disease, she is not talking about herself. And when she is sharing with us stories about her life, she is not talking about MS because she is not a disease. She may be a cripple, but as a cripple, she swaggers. She puts her own unique flair on this situation, on her experience, on this word. So generally speaking, when she is talking about MS, it is impersonal and formal and informational. When she is talking about herself, it is casual and personal and relatable. And the point is, the two purposes, she is informing people about MS, about what MS is, because not everybody knows, and not everybody has the experience, and people should have the experience, so they understand the nuances of her life, and what it means when she calls herself a cripple, and what she can do and what she can't do, and so on. Uh, How she is an example of a generalizable state of someone with MS, and also of someone being a cripple. But at the same time, she is separating herself from that, and connecting us to her, not to her as an example of a cripple, but to her as Nancy Mares, as the person who has all these wonderful experiences and also all these terrible experiences who we can relate to, who we can understand. And by intentionally making the distinctions between diction levels, between formal and informal, very clear, and also intentionally making things, you know, very obviously sad, very obviously not sad, very obviously happy, she is showing that there is a distinction to be made, that the things blend together to some extent, but there is still a separation. She is separating herself as a person from her subject, where she is using herself as an example, but she's helping us to understand that she is more than the example. And that's her whole point, right? That we are to see people as being a part of a category, and that is important, that informs their experience and their and their real-life situation. But at the same time, they are not merely that example. They are also a whole person that is so many more things and so much more complex. And again, the way she uses lists to show that everything in her life really is overfull. There are more things than she can possibly list in trying to describe herself, because she is more than a cripple. All of it is wonderful. I'm going to leave it here, though it is still worth looking at the rest of the essay. She mostly maintains the distinction between formal information for the reader learning about MS and casual narration of her personal experience. She continues to use herself as an example of what MS is and does to a person, although she expands at this point to use other examples of MS of other people that have suffered with MS. Um, And then she also uses MS as a lens whereby we can view the various elements of her life and personality. But I think you can see all that for yourself. And I have nothing else to add other than more examples. I will note that when she says that she can have a full and complete life with medical with medical help, she was right. 
Dr. Maris passed in 2016 at the age of 73 and was still giving talks and writing for almost all of that time. Here's hoping the rest of us can do as well. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.